Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie Wednesday morning, the 29th of June. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The emergency department in Our Lady's Hospital is causing huge concern for clinicians. Politicians, on the other hand, are unhappy about the solution being proposed by the HSE, which is to close the unit. Later, I'll talk to Helen McEntee, the Minister for Justice. But first, let's talk to Dr. Michael Power, who is an ICU consultant at Bowmount Hospital and the clinical lead for the HSE's National Clinical Programme for Critical Care. Care. Good morning to you, Dr. Parr, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Can I begin by asking you if it is safe to continue delivering emergency department services in Navan? Um, currently, um, Michael, the, uh, the short answer is uh, it isn't a safe platform. Um, it isn't a, a safe construct. Uh, currently, uh, the patients are, are coming in but the full range of services is not available uh, for those patients. For example, um, acute surgery service is not available. For example, if a critically ill patient uh, comes in and requires dialysis, uh, that's not available um, and so forth. So going back over some years now, Michael, um, concerns have been raised um, by clinicians um, across the Northeast about the uh, safety uh, uh, provision of services uh, at uh, Our Ladies Hospital in Evan. Mm. Dr. Colm Henry told me last week uh, that because it is unsafe, it, it could lead to poor outcomes for patients, up to and including death, unnecessary death. Is that a, a view that you would agree with? It is a view uh, that I agree with, uh, Michael. And uh, it's important um, to... I suppose say things, say things in the positive. Uh, so what is being said is a clinical pathway is being proposed, uh, and that is that patients are brought, uh, seriously ill patients, seriously injured patients, critically ill patients, are brought to the right hospital, uh, the right care platform first time, um, and they receive then the, the full range of resuscitation and, and specialty services. And um, we know where that's not available, that uh, outcomes uh, are poorer, and that includes um, 
patients not surviving, uh, as you say. Okay, and there have been some adverse incidents in Navan uh, in recent months. Um, I have the same information as you. I've heard that. Uh, I have no um, direct information on that, but uh, reportedly there have been, yes. Mm. Uh, But that wouldn't be of any surprise to you. So if somebody is in the emergency department in Navan this morning, should they or their family be concerned about uh, the care that uh, is being provided to them? Okay, well, there's, I think there's two parts to that, Michael. Uh, so the first part is that Navan is a very fine hospital in the range of services that it does provide. Okay, so that's an important um, that's an important statement. And I think with this transition, um, the 80% of all the patients who are going to Navan will continue to go to Navan, will continue to go to the local injury unit, will continue to go to the... Uh, medical assessment unit, the MAU. Um, some ambulatory daycare surgery is proposed also. So there are cohorts, there are groups of patients who uh, will continue to benefit greatly from the services which are very well uh, provided mm. and delivered in, in Navan by the excellent colleagues, the excellent administrators okay. in, in Navan. So the answer to your question is in two parts. Uh, the first part is that 80% of the patients mm. will continue to receive excellent care, as they do. And then the, the other 20% of patients who are in the acutely ill patients, um, that is what this is focused on. Absolutely. We don't want to upset anybody. We don't want to scaremonger. No. But you would be concerned for somebody who's being treated in Avon today, uh, who's receiving uh, emergency department services for them. You'd be concerned uh, that there's a, a risk to them a risk that their outcome will be poorer or poorer than would be expected if they were treated elsewhere. And there is even that small possibility that uh, they could die as a result of the poor treatment that they receive. So so what, what is being said is that the um, acute care pathway um, does not in, include Navin at this time and that the acute care pathway uh, should go to Drogheda. Uh, and if I might just go into that uh, a little bit, uh, if I may. So I think there's two parts to that. And the first part is the response, the out-of-hospital response, mm. pre-hospital response by the uh, ambulance uh, colleagues, by um, in particular the advanced paramedics. So um, it it is, uh, the plan is to set up an advanced paramedic base in, in Navan, and that includes a roster of advanced paramedics, and that's a uh, seven days a week around the around the clock roster uh, of advanced paramedics, and even in addition to advanced paramedics, critical care advanced paramedics. So these are highly skilled paramedics who deliver care, immediate uh, care to uh, patients uh, outside the hospital, uh, in in the, maybe at home, mm. in in which in which in whichever setting. And that is definitely an improvement. And perhaps that point hasn't been emphasized mm. uh, fully uh, as yet. If I just may finish yeah. that point, yeah. if I may. Mm-hmm. Um, so in north parts of Meath, Michael, um, your listeners will be familiar with uh, the um, advanced paramedic service that's available there um, in uh, Castle Blaney, for example. So the advanced paramedic service moved from Monaghan to Castle Blaney when Dundalk Hospital transitioned uh, very well and very safely. Um, and so oh. listeners in the north part of north parts of Meath will be familiar with that excellent advanced paramedic service that operates 
out of Castle Blaney. Okay, uh, and I understand that you're assessing this from a clinical perspective, and perhaps it's wrong of me to ask you to do otherwise, uh, but the situation is such that I must do, because this has become political, and I'm not sure that the clinical assessment is part of uh, the political argument, and there's a very strong political argument against your expertise and your clinical assessment and those of your colleagues in the HSE. Uh, what do you say to politicians uh, who are making these arguments? Well, uh, I see their point of view is is the uh, is the first thing I'd say. So uh, I've heard uh, many politicians uh, come out and stand up and be loyal to their constituents and ask questions about the health care uh, provision uh, for uh, patients uh, in the constituency, and, and these are valid questions mm. and valid concerns. But is it putting um, patients uh, at risk, and is, is it asking well, doctors to take responsibility for patients who are at risk when the doctors want to treat them otherwise? Well, j- j- just let me, if I may, finish the point. So what, what is being said to the politicians and to to all and your listeners, and if I may, just walk to the, the same points again, and I know you're very familiar with them, Michael, it's the point is the clinical pathway, which includes the pre-hospital emergency care by the advanced paramedics. So that's a completely new service. And the second point is the additional capacity uh, in Drogheda. So there's additional ICU beds, additional acute care beds. 40 beds have been added in Drogheda for Navin in particular, uh, as, uh, is the information that I have. And that assurance and that confirmation uh, has been given by HSE, by the hospital groups. So the answer to the valid questions that the politicians are asking is in two parts. It's the clinical pathway and the clinical capacity, Michael. Okay. Uh, But are politicians putting patients at risk of a a poor outcome, up to and including death, this morning in the emergency department, and I can understand your hesitancy in responding to that, Dr. Power, uh, and... At the same time, are they asking the medics to take responsibility for those poor outcomes? Uh, no, I think what the politicians are doing is they're uh, asking uh, fair questions uh, and they want um, detail uh, with regard to the clinical pathway and the clinical capacity that I've just outlined. Mm. And uh, I believe uh, the answers that are there are satisfactory and I'm happy as a clinical lead of a national clinical program to comment, reassure you and your listeners, if I can, um, that the pathway and the capacity is there. And this is an improvement and this is modernisation. And uh, I, I believe it, it will lead to improved outcomes for patients. OK, and we've uh, ministers uh, like Stephen Donnelly or Helen McEntee telling us otherwise, that they've been speaking to other medical professionals who are members of the RCSI group who believe that the capacity isn't in Drogheda despite the 40 beds, despite the two ICU beds and so on. Yeah, and uh, I've, I've heard that too. And uh, I think what has happened is that the uh, hospital groups uh, have confirmed to the minister, to Mr Donnelly, that the additional capacity is there and that includes, as I say, the advancement paramedic service and also the additional capacity in Drogheda. And if I might just go for uh, a second, if I may, Michael, just to the, the two additional ICU beds. So th- that's a significant addition. Um, if you add up all the days in the year, then quite quickly that comes to, what is it, uh, over 700 um, ICU bed days. And 
if you look at Jordan, just bear with me for a second, Michael, if, mm-hmm. if I may. So if you if you look at Navin, so the figure currently is that fifty patients uh, receive ICU care in the ICU in Navin, and the average length of stay is about five days. So that adds up to about two hundred and fifty days. Now Drawhead is adding seven hundred days to the ICU capacity. So there's ample additional capacity being added to Drogheda, um, which I'm very satisfied with and very satisfied to hear, Michael. Is there a political solution to this that would be satisfactory to everybody, uh, to those who want a, a local hospital, bells and whistles, uh, to the clinicians uh, who are concerned about safety because of uh, the capacity issues and uh, the ability to provide services in a small hospital, and that is to invest uh, because in 2008, Navin was selected uh, as the location for a, a new regional hospital that was hoped for at the time and never realised. Uh, but the reason that it was selected was because of the population of the town and indeed the catchment area. OK, um, I think the answer to the question is there a political solution. I, um, I think the answer is that there is a clinical solution, which is currently there. This, this transition, Michael. Mm. And the reality is that Navin Hospital, in terms of its recognition, uh, has been um, it has been de-recognised, if, if, if that's a word. Mm. So the, the training colleges do not send the junior doctors there anymore. Um, and that's been going on for a number of years now. Um, and the current reality, uh, based on the figures and the evidence that's there in front of HSC is the HSC has come up with this um, solution, clinical solution, mm. um, as opposed to uh, perhaps a political solution. But based on the resources solution. that it has, uh, uh, and that's yeah. one solution, but is there a, 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 an alternative option, which is for those who want a hospital in Navin with an emergency department to invest in that, to provide the resources uh, to build a new hospital or to build up Navin. If that was done, uh, could they have what, what what they're asking for, what they're insisting on, in fact? Okay, uh, I think the answer, uh, and I think it's a fair answer, Michael, is that the emergency service provision that is in part of this transition, which is the um, advanced paramedic and the additional capacity in Drogheda, that is a real clinical solution to the current problems that face face the area, and uh, that's my that's my belief, and uh, I'm I'm in support of, of this transition. Okay, we have to leave it there because we're out of time. But thank you indeed for your time and for joining us on the program. Thanks, Michael. Dr. Michael Power is an ICU consultant at Bowmount Hospital and the clinical lead for the HSE's National Clinical Programme for Critical Care. Michael Reed on LMFM. As you know, the government has published its zero tolerance strategy to tackle domestic, sexual and gender based violence. It's a 363 million euro strategy that will run over five years. And in that time, it will establish a new statutory agency to drive the implementation of what's being suggested here, which includes a doubling of the number of refuge spaces from what 
what is now 141 spaces to 280. It'll also allow for a specific offence of non-fatal strangulation, an overhaul of the relationships and sexuality education curriculum for both primary and secondary school children, a doubling of the maximum sentence for assault causing harm to 10 years and the removal of legal barriers which will allow victims to stay in their family home. Let's speak to the Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee. A very good morning to you, Minister, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. This strategy, the third such strategy, has been broadly welcomed by those working in the area of violence, in particular against women. It has, and look, I'm hugely grateful to so many in the sector who've actually worked with us over the past two years and helped to develop this strategy uh, yesterday it was a really positive day because it was the culmination of about two years of that work. Uh, and what is different to this strategy, this is the third, we've obviously built on the previous two strategies, is that we actually co-designed this with the sector. So in particular, the National Women's Council and Safe Ireland, both of whom represent hundreds of organisations across the country. Uh, they worked very closely with us from the very start to make sure that everything that we did, that we had front and centre, the victim in mind, what type of services we needed, how we needed to, to develop them, and that really everything that we did, that it was in consultation with those who were working day in, day out on the front line, working with victims, both women and men. And in particular, there's a greater emphasis in this strategy on children, acknowledging that children are not just witnesses, but that they are also victims themselves. Um, as you said at the outset, this is a strategy It has 144 actions. So while I didn't just publish the plan, we published the implementation plan with it too. Um, There are dates, there are timelines, there are very clear actions, who has to carry out those actions. And I believe it it allows us to to have that oversight to make sure that each and every one of us, so from my own department, right across government and all of our agencies, that there is that oversight, that we know who's doing what and obviously that everything gets done that we say we will do. Um, But the strategy, it it is ambitious. We've set an overall target of zero tolerance. uh, And really that is, it's not just about laws. It's not just about refuge and accommodation. It's about really trying to change how people think about domestic and sexual violence, how people talk about it, how people respond to it. So the, the days where we just simply sit back and say, well, that's a private issue, you know, mm. that, that abuse is happening behind closed doors. It's not really my business. We really need to change that because it is our business. It is something that we all need to deal with. You know, and you mentioned the school curriculum. Again, I would say the days where we simply say, well, that person is too young to talk to them about it. It's too difficult an issue. Our children are experiencing things at a much younger age. Uh, everything from what they're exposed to online to potentially and unfortunately what they're exposed to at home. So it's important that we talk to them in an age-appropriate way about what healthy relationships are, about how they should be engaging, you know, boys and girls as they get older, men and women. Uh, So really this strategy, there's a lot in it. A huge Mm. amount of work has gone into it and it'll only work if everybody, everybody comes together. So me, you, people who are listening and then obviously those who are involved in, in delivering services and, and obviously working and supporting victims themselves. Okay, and I think it's something that uh, you've been personally interested in driving and want to affect change uh, during your tenure as Minister for Justice in respect of 
how this problem starts, whether that's in the schoolyard and how it ends, whether that's in how people are treated uh, through the judicial justice system and indeed how victims are treated. Quite often over the years we've been hearing from women in particular and I know it's a problem for men, particularly when it comes to refuge spaces. There's uh, nowhere for them to go. Uh, But there's uh, nine counties, is it, that don't have a, a refuge and you're going to double that number, as we said, from 141 to 280. That work begins next year with the first 24 centres being established in Navan, Dundalk and Wexford, as I understand it. So you're right, there are nine counties that don't have any and the intention is by the end of this strategy, all of those counties will have refuge and accommodation. Not only that, but we'll actually build on services that currently exist because the demand is there and it's required. So we have a wonderful refuge in Navan, the Mead Women's Refuge, and they are and have been working to develop and to move and to build their services. So with Dundalk, Navan and Wexford over the next year and a half, they will have new premises, they will have expanded services, and this will obviously be hugely welcome for, for our own counties, for, for Louth and Mead and surrounding areas. On top of that, then, we have a very clear plan for the next 98, which covers 12 priority locations we've identified, and then a remainder 19. Uh, And really what's important about the next few years, because if, if you say to someone, you know, we're going to double and increase by 141, it doesn't sound like a loss. But we're not simply just putting mm. people into a house or into a room. There is not, as it was, a structure in place that enables us to develop refuges quickly at the moment. And what we're doing, and we're working again very closely with the sector, is we're developing a design. We're developing a service level agreement or that there will be a minimum standard that every service and every refuge will provide. We're putting in place structures so that's where those counties that don't have any refuge or accommodation that we can reach in, that we can bring people together, that we can help develop those services. And it's my intention and I think everybody's hope that once we get those structures in place, you know, the 282, that is our aspiration for this strategy, but we will be in a position to then be able to move even higher than that, because unfortunately, we will most likely need more. I mean, the, the ambition of the strategy is that you will need less refuge. But we know, obviously, looking at the European standards, what you need is one per 10,000 people. And that includes men and that includes women. So we have work to do. But, you know, I think everybody working together on this, everybody has the same goal and ambition. And from a government point of view, whether it's the Minister for Housing, Minister for Public Expenditure and Finance, or on Taoiseach, everybody is very committed to making sure that we get this done. Right, Uh, and that figure... Uh, of one per 10,000 comes under what is known as uh, the Istanbul Convention, which Ireland signed up to in 2015. Uh, And seven years on, instead of, actually, it'll realistically be 12 years on, won't it? Um, Instead of having one refuge per 10,000 people, it'll be more like one per 20,000. And I mean, look, uh, I'm not saying that this will get us to exactly where we need to be in this strategy, but I think it will certainly make that progress that we need to actually then build on. So we've done a huge amount of work in the last two years looking at how domestic violence is dealt with across government, how it's structured, how refuges are developed, what we need to do to improve all of this. And that has been part of the last two years, not just the strategy and all of the other actions, but how do we make it more coherent? So from now on, and and as of this week, we have an agreement in place where my department is now not just responsible for policy of domestic violence, but I am now responsible for delivery of service and development of refuge and accommodation. So I'll be working very closely with all of those 
from housing and public expenditure. I'll be working closely with TUSLA, who will have responsibility for this until the agency takes over. And we will be making sure that these structures are put in place, Mm. that we have a, a really strong basis to work off and that we will reach those targets. So I want to be realistic. I, I would, you know, I could say that well, we'll reach our target of 400 plus. I don't think that would be realistic, but I think we will certainly make significant progress. And as you mentioned at the very outset, it's about a number of other things. So separate to that number I mentioned, yeah. we will have 14 safe houses come on stream, 14 new safe houses come What's on stream. What's the difference, Minister, here. between a safe house and a refuge? So a safe house is, a refuge, I suppose, is, is a very clear place that a woman can go with her child um, where they are in danger or where they are fleeing a dangerous situation uh, and they need that support, they need that assistance from people who would be working in the refuge. A safe house is for someone who maybe is in not as difficult a situation but needs assistance and needs help so they are not within the confines of a refuge. They are out in a house that's in the community uh, and often a safe house is used as a step-down accommodation or it's used just as a, a, a a safe stop for somebody in the interim of them moving on to somewhere else. So we need to have those type of safe houses in the community that are not as intensive, that are not uh, where somebody doesn't require the same level of support, but they still need that connection with the services and everybody else. So we will have 15 of those additional come on stream this year. We will have many more the year after. And then there was a commitment to develop step-down housing. So this is for women who have been in refuges who maybe can't go home because their partner is there or they don't have somewhere to go to but it is a step down until they are on their feet Mm. and then on top of that as well an issue that has been very difficult and I know uh, previous governments and ministers have looked at this and because of our constitution have found it challenging but I find it very difficult that a woman who has been abused or any person who has been abused always is the person that has to leave the home uh, because generally the perpetrator is the one that will not move, that will stay there, and it is the woman that is fleeing and seeking refuge. So I am again working with the Garda Commissioner, but my own legal uh, team in the department, to try and find a way that it is the person who is a victim and their family that they will remain in the home and that the perpetrator must leave. And that in itself would mean then that you perhaps don't have as much a need for the actual physical refuge, but of course you will still need the services, you need the help, you need the assistance uh, that a victim would require. Mm. There's a lot of work that uh, has been worked on, but, uh, you know... As I I said at the outset, Minister, has been welcomed by uh, all of the groups uh, who work in this area and it has to be seen as a very positive step forward uh, and undoubtedly will lead to improvement uh, because uh, I think there's little chance of it uh, lying on a shelf uh, gathering dust uh, given that a a Cabinet subcommittee is uh, to be formed uh, to oversee this. That'll be chaired by the Taoiseach and led by the Minister for Justice yourself at the moment as well as this new uh, state agency uh, which will coordinate all of uh, the actions uh, that are be to be taken, the 144 actions, as you said at the outset. So very, very positive, uh, I think, Minister, and uh, little uh, wonder there's been such a broad welcome for it. Can I ask you uh, about uh, Navin Hospital next, please? Uh, and a letter in the Irish Times uh, today from Barney McCaughey, who says, Much of my working life was spent in the development of health services in many countries across the developed and developing worlds. The first piece of advice I was given, and which I found to be universally true, might be summed up as... When you are planning health services, remember that the only absolutely certain way to unite any community, no matter how riven, is to threaten its local hospital. 
in that context, can I put it to you, Minister, that you knowingly and intentionally usurped Paul Reid's authority? Do you accept that your actions uh, have led to the HSE's CEO deciding to resign? Well, absolutely. No, I, I do not accept that. Um, and I wish Paul well. I have worked very closely with him uh, in my former role as Minister for Mental Health. And I've worked very closely with him as him uh, in his current role in the HSE. Uh, obviously, his own decision. I think that was a private decision. Um, in relation to Navin Hospital, I, I think it's only right. And, and I said this on your show a few weeks ago, speaking to Ken, that as a minister, but also as, as a local representative, if there is to be any major change in any services, that you know we need to be assured. And I have asked the question simply around capacity. Uh, we've seen in other counties where smaller A&Es have closed for very similar reasons um, and where there hasn't been capacity added in other hospitals. And I suppose the challenges and the difficulties that they mm. have caused. So my concern here and, and my questions are simply around the capacity uh, and asking what measures are being put in place, okay. what resources are being put in place. All right, but, uh, but Dr. Colum Col- Henry told us on uh, the programme last week that uh, you're putting people at the risk of dying by keeping this service open. Uh, we heard this morning from Dr. Michael Power, who's uh, the clinical lead for the HSE's National Clinical Programme for Critical Care. He said you're putting people at risk of dying by keeping the service open. Uh, and he said that the capacity has been put in place uh, and that uh, it is safe to go ahead with this. Uh, and we'll just hear uh, 30 seconds of what he said about the risk to patients in the emergency department this morning. A clinical pathway is being proposed, uh, and that is that patients are brought, uh, seriously ill patients, seriously injured patients, critically ill patients, are brought to the right hospital, uh, the right care platform, first time. Um, and they receive then the, the full range of resuscitation and, and specialty services. And um, we know where that's not available, that uh, outcomes uh, are poorer, and that includes um, patients not surviving, uh, as you say. Can you live with that, Minister? Michael, I have never disputed the concerns that have been raised. To be honest, these are concerns that have been raised for a number of years and for a number of years I have asked very simple questions I have never played politics with this I have never uh, said that this can never happen, I have never got out and marched and said that Navin Hospital can never change, I've simply asked if there are to be changes can we be informed as to what those changes are, exactly what they look like, how it will work how do we engage You're being told told it's safe to make the changes. If you don't make the changes, outcomes will be poorer for patients uh, and you're putting people at risk of unnecessary death. Can you live with that, Minister? Well, the challenge I have with that statement is I have listened very closely to all of the medical experts that have Mm. obviously advocated for this, but I've also listened to the many, many clinicians and other medical experts who were in Drogheda Hospital and Mm. in the surrounding counties who have said that they don't have the capacity that they haven't been engaged with. And if this change were to happen, then they would then be taking on a different risk. Okay. So I, I, for me, it, it, it's very difficult because to be told that I'm ignoring a clinical risk here, I take that very seriously. Well, that's what the HSE is, is saying to you, but you've usurped uh, the authority of uh, the HSE's clinicians and its CEO. That's led to his resignation. Uh, uh, and uh, there's little doubt, Minister, that uh, you're using your political 
power to do that. Uh, you have your political power that gives you the, uh, the wherewithal to do that. Uh, and uh, on the subject of politics, would it be right to say that if Navin's emergency department closes, that Fine Gael will suffer, <coughs> excuse me, in the next election, that Damien English is gone, certainly, and that your seat is at risk? Well, if I could just say, I am very capable of either losing or winning my seat by myself, and I certainly would not hang my hat on any one issue. I have never made this a political issue, nor would I, because we are talking about people's lives. I would never make this a political issue, and I want to be clear on that. It has never been a political issue for well, me. This is you're, too you're serious contradic- a matter. You're contradicting the medical expertise on it. Well, I, I don't think I am when I have medical experts in Drogheda Hospital, which you and I and many others locally have attended. We know the pressure that they are under, and they have said very clearly that they would be taking on a medical risk. So I am simply asking if there were to be a change, have they put, have they, said, ha, have they put that on the record? I haven't heard any uh, medical expert in the RCSI group or in the hospital in Drogheda go on the record and make those statements. Should they do yes. that? Yes, they have. And I sat in a meeting with those clinicians and with Minister Donnelly where every single thing that I have just said to you has been expressed. So it's very difficult when obviously we are hearing a clinical view and I don't doubt that. I don't for a second reject that. But we are also being given a separate clinical view of a hospital that is hugely under pressure through no fault of the wonderful staff in Drogheda and I would say the wonderful staff in Navan that they are very concerned that the clinical risk will be transferred to them. and That, that it was be a private a meeting, wasn't it, Minister? That was a private meeting? That was a meeting, but my understanding is that they have put this on the record with Minister Donnelly as well. Okay. So I, I, can, it, only, I can only say what I have been... But Minister, if, if, if these clinicians feel that way, uh, and the HSE uh, feels completely differently, and saying this is threatening public health, it's putting lives at risk, uh, would you not encourage those medics to go on the public record? And I have, and my understanding is that they have. They perhaps haven't been on your radio station, but we have spoke consistently to them, and again only in the last few weeks, where they have said they have not been consulted. But it's not, I mean, this is the role of the HSE, and this is simply the questions that I'm asking. Have you engaged with the other hospitals? Can you assure us that there is capacity there? We were told there would be 10 additional beds. But you see, There has not been a commitment in the recent capital plan for those additional beds. Okay, Minister, I'm sorry to cut across you, but we we have heard a a lot of the things you're saying, and I don't mean to be rude, but people are are, are trying to understand what's going on. Uh, We've uh, a Minister for Health who isn't speaking to local media, hasn't spoken to local media since uh, this has happened. Uh, We've Paul Reid, who hasn't spoken to local media since this has happened uh, and has resigned uh, on a national radio station, more or less. Uh, Then we have uh, clinicians in Drogheda who are are saying one thing, but they're not speaking to any media, it seems. Uh, And then we have the HSE who are telling us, uh, I wouldn't go into that hospital. Uh, I wouldn't let your mother or your father or your son or your daughter go into that hospital. They could end up dead. Uh, How are people supposed to uh, ascertain the reality of the situation if they're not given all of the facts in a very transparent way. And I think you can see that is why I am frustrated talking to you about this because I have never in the nine years that I've been speaking to you made a political issue of this. I have never said never. I have never said this can't happen. I have always said very clearly we need to sit down. We need to talk it through. We know in other counties where this has happened, where it's been done well because there has been consultation and engagement We know in other counties where it hasn't gone well, where we've had hospitals that are now still trying to grapple with the fact 
there wasn't additional capacity put in place. I can't tell people to go on radio. I can't dictate what others should do. I, I'm, I'm afraid I would wholly reject your suggestion that Paul Reid has resigned based on this or that I have caused that. And as I've said, I, I wish him well for whatever his reasons are. What I would personally like if everybody could sit down and go through this, because it's very difficult for me to say that I have two different groups of people saying two very different things to me. And yes, one group is saying that they are not being listened to or they're not being engaged with. And that is simply all that I'm doing. I do not want to be involved in a dispute around what is clinically correct or not. That is not my job. I, I don't have the expertise, but I have two different groups of people, as does the minister, which is why he has taken the position that he has. And really, I want to see this resolved as quickly as possible because... I don't for a second want you or anybody else telling me that I'm putting somebody's life at risk. I simply want clarity as to how something like this would work and how everybody can be assured that there is capacity in the system to make sure that those 1,700 or 2,000 people that those in Navin are talking about, that they are safe, but that the remainder of the 20,000 or even a fraction of those that might end up in Drogheda, that they are safe and that they will be seen in the quick and efficient manner that will protect them as well. Minister, thank you indeed, as always, for joining us on the programme. The Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, who's a Fine Gael TD for Mead East. Michael Reed on LMFM. A lot of local excitement in the Dáil yesterday. Ciarán Corla, we have three boxing champions in the public gallery that I want to uh, welcome and acknowledge. Amy Broadhurst is the IBA Light Welterweight Champion of the World. Dervla Tinnelly, Youth Light Heavyweight European Champion. And Evelyn Igaro is the current Irish Elite Champion at 70 kilos. And they're joined by coach Jim O'Neill from the Clan Neafa Boxing Club from Merhavnamore in Dundalk. So these women are trailblazers and... They were around the house, members met them around. I have to say we're all a bit starstruck, so well done. Keep keep at it. And of course, I see the Muslim Sisters of Era here as well, so you're also uh, most welcome. Thank you for that, Count Corla. As I say, a, a lot of excitement and a lot of starstruck TDs at uh, some of our, our local heroes uh, there, Sinn Féin's. Mary Lou MacDonald pointed out now back uh, to uh, another local issue uh, that was raised in uh, the Doll last week. Uh, you've been hearing actually uh, about uh, that story uh, relating to Dalgan House Nursing Home in Dundalk uh, and the Irish Times reporting today that it received €623,000 in COVID funding care Choice Nursing Home in Trim €807,000 uh, but there's been a lot of questions about Dalgan House as we know let's go back to Fergus O'Dowd Fine Gael TD for Loud and East Mead who's been raising this issue consistently in the Dáil with government a very good morning to you Fergus, thanks for joining us uh, last time round you were told that a, a group had been put in place to look into what happened in Dalgan House that their work had nearly finished and you were to get a, a written response. Uh, you were to come back to us. The reason you didn't come back to us is because you didn't get the written response. I didn't get the written response. What happened was my question uh, to the Taoiseach was moved to the Minister for Health and instead of being replied to last week, 
It still hasn't been officially replied to, but I got a letter from the Minister for Health addressing none of the issues I raised in the doll, none of the issues that the tissue comes out address. So in my view, it's a disgraceful response from the department and the minister. I've spoken to the minister privately about this a number of times. The families have met with the minister, I think, last November. He undertook to get back to them. As far as I'm aware, I, I can be contradicting this, obviously, he has made no contact with them since. So on the one hand, there's 135 million euros under temporary system payments to nursing homes up and down the country. And on the other hand, those who whose families suffered in a home which had to be taken over by the HSE have had no communication, no answer to my query as to what was happening in relation to what the Taoiseach said, and I'm quoting him, how best to respect and to meet the needs and concerns of the families of those affected. So nothing has happened. And Michael, I just, I'm just appalled mm. at that. Now, obviously, I'm followed up again today and tomorrow, and we're going to get answers to the questions because they must be answered and the families are entitled to closure. That's my belief. Okay, Uh, and the response would be to you from government. Uh, The Dáil record shows that that response uh, will be forthcoming. Uh, That's what Minister Darrell O'Brien said on behalf of uh, the government to you last week. Uh, That response uh, you sought on behalf of the families uh, yes. I, I believe the families were very, very interested to learn of that news and I'm sure they're very disappointed at the situation that they're in now and that you're in now. They are because I spoke to two members of two separate families last night and um, I'm just, you know, I'm just appalled at this. Obviously, I'm putting the question back into the Minister for Health. He's not going to escape with this answer. Um, as soon as this call is over, I'll be getting onto the questions office and that will be raising it further in the doll, hopefully tomorrow and possibly on Friday. But look, the key point is, if we're spending all that money in supporting nursing homes, um, obviously all that money will have to be auditors and I accept that mm. totally. Uh, but the question is, how come the families, you know, their, their rights of their family members, um, the whole question of vindicating the rights of people who, who you know, that they, 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 there was something seriously amiss when the HSE had to go in to take over the home. The only one in the whole country, Michael. So we're entitled to the truth of that. And the families, as I said, will continue. They're not going away and I'm not going away. And you're not going away either. Mm. This so, yeah, but there's a, a, I mean, this is sort of pernickety, uh, or some people might think it's pernickety, uh, but it's actually very, very important because the record of the doll has to be accurate and completely accurate. The record of the doll says that there has been a group working on this, they've almost finished their work and they're about to report to the minister and that information will be forwarded to you in the near future or thereabouts. I paraphrase what the minister said. And that is on the Dáil record. That, that, that has to be the case or the record has to be changed. That's correct. Uh, the record will have to be changed if that is not the position. But like, don't forget like the Taoiseach, in fairness to him, uh, he gave a balanced view on it uh, back in January when he said he wasn't in favour of Commissioner Quarry, but he did want to respect and meet the needs of the families, which I can understand. Uh, the minister, in fairness to our Byron, he's not the minister, he's not the Taoiseach, he, he was standing in from at the last minute. But that's what he was given, that's what's on the record, and that's not what happened. And um, 
it creates further concern, obviously, for the families. And, you know, Michael, at the end of the day, if those who have suffered most uh, in terms of losing their family members are not being supported or not being replied to by the Minister for Health, are given one commitment in the doll, uh, albeit, you know, I'm not blaming the Minister for what he said. He was given that brief uh, compared to what's happened in that letter where there's no reference. There's no reference even yeah. to the families who passed away. There's nothing. There's absolutely nothing. Okay. It's completely without any humanity or any respect for the families, in my yeah, view. Yeah. And that's why I think the Minister is disgraceful in sending that to me. And I, and I would be saying that to him, obviously, as well. Okay, well, uh, we'll hear back from you, I'm sure, uh, in time. Um, but uh, thanks, yeah. th- th- thanks for the update, uh, which thank is, that, the, which is that there is no update, which is out of your control, obviously. Uh, but thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, again with that. That's uh, Fergus O'Dowd from the Gale TD for Louth and East Meath. Jerry is in trim and he was on the phone to us. He says he was listening uh, to all of uh, the coverage about uh, the hospital in Navan and he says... It seems to him the hospital is not uh, equipped to care for critically ill patients. And the bottom line is that if you're very ill, you want the best possible care and treatment. However, he says, I agree with the view that the acute hospitals like Our Lady of Lourdes Hospital in Drogheda are not able to cater for additional patients. They are already under enormous pressure and the wait times are very long. So how is this safer for patients? He asks. Thanks, uh, Jerry, for that. Uh, another call that's come to us uh, this morning from Pat, who's in Navin. He says they have already begun the process in relation to the emergency department in Navin Hospital. It's not the same as it was before and the politicians need not be trying to cut the people of the town. We were promised years ago a new hospital and it never happened. This is what we want, a new hospital, he says. Now, two weeks ago, Minister, there was an order given when the Oireachtas members from Mead sat in a room in your Department of Health with 18 of the lead figures within the HSE and top clinicians in Ireland, and they painted a stark vista of clinical concerns regarding the operation of the ED in Navan. We all listened intently. There was equally a stark vista painted of the ED situation in Drogheda, where it is proposed to transfer patients from Navan to sit in a queue for 12 hours and wait to be seen, and where a leading clinical director in the room claimed that he'd rather see people in that queue in Drogheda than in Navan. Hardly a sales pitch for the people of Navan. So we heard that clearly too. As did the Minister for Health, and consequently that day, he put a hold on the plans by the HSE to reconfigure the emergency department in Navan. But last Sunday, Paul Reid, the CEO of the HSE, adopted the role of Lieutenant Kendrick on radio and decided he was going to ignore the order and do his own thing. So my question, Minister, it's very straightforward, is who is in control of our health system? I don't want the pre-prepared stuff that the Department are going to have prepared for this. I want you as a Minister of the Department of Health to answer that. Who is in control of our health system? The Senior Minister halted plans. And not for parish pump political reasons, as Yaron Sheehan in the Irish Independent claimed yesterday. Because not only could they not answer our questions on the day in terms of capacity, but they also admitted that they were sending them to an already overcrowded emergency department. Blatantly said that. The HSE have given the two fingers 
to the Minister for Health. Now we've been warned by consultants and by Paul Reid that politicians holding out against this could result in the deaths of people in Navan Emergency Department. But that works both ways. That works both ways. Nobody in that room was able to answer the tough questions on what happens my people from Navan when they get to an overcrowded emergency department in Drogheda where they'll have to wait for 12 to 13 hours to be seen. That is not an adequate health service in this country. It's not. It's a stain on the country. And for the HSE to claim that's how they propose to handle people like cattle is a goddamn disgrace. They're operating on a wing and a prayer. Build up capacity later. Recreate Limerick and Navan. Not on my watch. The claim that people will die works both ways. Don't threaten me. Don't threaten politicians. If you can't do your job, HSE, to provide the service that the people need, you're given the budget, go and do it. Men follow orders or people die. Lots of lads playing God here. Uh, a very animated uh, Fianna Fáil Senator Shane Castles speaking in Shannon yesterday. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Yeah, to a peculiar story, if ever there was a peculiar story, and it is uh, the situation uh, that we're in now, that if uh, the DAA finds itself not capable of running Dublin Airport because of staff shortages, it will be able to bring in the army to help out. Let's uh, speak uh, to Commandant Martin Ryan, who's uh, the president of uh, the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers, or RACO, and also Independent Senator Gerard Crockwell, uh, a former member of uh, the Defence Forces. Good morning to both of you, and thanks uh, for joining us on the programme. Commandant Ryan, uh, are you worried about this? Um, I, I suppose uh, my concerns would be just it, it, it was an unexpected request uh, given that that uh, government, both the Minister and the Taoiseach, had, had categorically ruled out the deployment of the Army uh, prior to this to Dublin Airport. Um, however, uh, as ever, um, you know, we're turned to in, 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 in countries' time of need, and that's what, what the Cabinet seemed to uh, deem this. So I suppose we, we, we respond accordingly. So our only concern uh, is, is, of course, that the personnel deployed um, and and our membership uh, will, will will you know be fairly compensated uh, in terms of time off mm. and also financially and that there will be minimal disruption we hope to 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 courses training and and also of course it must be be, be identified that it's the peak leave period for families of the defence forces also so mm. Uh, mm. Uh, I just hope that there, there there's minimal disruption to to people's uh, leave plans within the organisation. Forgive me, I hope for asking you: Have you got the time to do this, or have you nothing else to be doing? Uh, have you been trained? Uh, or do you know what you're being asked to do and will you receive training if you've not been trained? Uh, I, I believe we will. I believe there's, there's, there's training arranged or there's training scheduled and, and then it, and then we go on standby. Um, some of the reports yesterday indicated that maybe it's unlikely we'd be deployed. However, what, what everyone should know, placing us on standby means we're prepared to go in. So th- those people are only then allotted to go into to, to Dublin Airport. So deployed or not, actually, it, those people are taken out of, 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 of other activities. That, that, that is quite true. Um, in terms of whether we have sufficient personnel to do this task, uh, it's well documented now that, that, that uh, in, 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 uh, in the doll uh, and, and by, by spokespeople that we need a minimum of 11,000. We're currently down around 8,200. So 
that would indicate that for the tasks that, that are expected of the Defence Forces, we, we are currently well under-resourced for that. Mm. And have you any idea of how many people might be deployed to work in the airport? Because I think they're saying if 20% of the staff uh, is out uh, because of COVID, uh, they'll be calling on you. Uh, I don't know what that equates to, do you? Uh, I don't. Um, we, we haven't received any information on that as yet uh, in, in the Representative Association. Uh, we have sought some clarifications from the Department of Defence yesterday. Uh, to be fair to all, it, I suppose this was an unexpected request. Um, so, you know, we expect to be informed and appraised of, of, of what uh, our members will be expected to do uh, in the very near future. Um, mm, OK, uh, let me ask Jared Crockwell about this. Because as a, a politician, you'll understand the importance of this. Uh, the country's reputation is at stake because the airport has been nothing short of a downright disgrace. Uh, but you come at this from both angles, that of a, a politician uh, and indeed uh, as someone uh, whose heart lies in uh, the Defence Forces. What uh, do you make of it on balance? Uh, good morning, Michael. Good morning to your listeners. Um, on balance, I'm absolutely outraged at what, what has been suggested. The part-time minister was met by the Minister for Transport. They have a problem. The problem is with the management of Dublin Airport Authority, uh, and they have failed to resolve that problem. Um, they have been unable to recruit people, and if they're unable to recruit people, the first thing they should do is look at the salaries they're offering. The second issue, Michael, is the uh, part-time minister offered... Uh, uh, OK, that's twice. I was waiting for you to stop. What do you mean by the part-time minister? That it should be a dedicated minister for defence, is it? Absolutely. We're right. the only country outside Malta in the European Union that does not have a dedicated minister okay, for defence. Because, because Simon Coveney has a dual role. He has, yeah. And let's face it, as Minister for Foreign Affairs, he really doesn't have time for the Defence Forces. Okay. He couldn't possibly. The role of Foreign, foreign Affairs is far too vast uh, to be able to give the level of dedication that's required to the Defence Forces right now. And um, I mean, the bottom line on it is uh, we were told that there wouldn't be a, a deployment of people to Dublin Airport. Now we're being told that there would. And um, my colleague, Carl Burry, referred to it as order, counter-order and disorder. And I think that sums up where we're at at the moment. Uh, the, uh, President Racco there uh, made it very clear. This is a prime time of the year for Defence Force personnel to go on holidays too. And once these people are allocated to Dublin Airport, that means all leave will be cancelled and they will be put on standby. I think it's an appalling outrage. The minister that requested the support for the Dublin Airport Authority is on record as wanting to close uh, Cahill Brewer Barracks in Dublin, which would be the accommodation uh, location for those who will be coming to man Dublin Airport, because they will have to be drawn from Cork, Limerick, Kilkenny, Galway, Dundalk. They're not available in Dublin. And as uh, Cameron Ryan said there, bottom line on this is if we're pulling them out of those barracks up to Dublin to man Dublin Airport's uh, mismanagement of their security system, uh, training, vital training will be put on hold, uh, career cr- progression training will be put on hold, yeah. uh, and the issue... Well, you, you, I, mean, I, I mean, I suppose you understand the reason of the question, if you've nothing else to be doing, uh, because that must be uh, the assumption uh, by those who are, are making this decision, that the army is there sitting around waiting for something to do, uh, and if they get a call because there's a lot of snow, or the DAA can't run the airport, that's very handy. 
I, th- I think that you, you have a point. Um, I think there is a misconception out there, certainly amongst the political class at cabinet level, as to what the Defence Forces are actually doing. The Minister would do well to spend a day uh, in the life of uh, Commandant Ryan there, for example, and see where he's probably doing three or four different roles uh, within his position. Uh, my serving days, which we often refer to on this programme, Michael, uh, in, in, in my day, we used to have a battalion parade every morning, every mm. serving officer, every serving NCO and every soldier was on parade and we were all there, we all had one job and one job only to do. Um, now uh, young officers are being expected to do several jobs and indeed in some cases young, very young officers, the lieutenants particularly, are earning less than the men they're supervising which is absolutely crazy. How will this, be, se- how will this be seen in other countries? I think it will be seen as a gross failure by Dublin Airport Authority. Um, And bear in mind now, I travelled to Berlin last week and the week before I travelled to London. There were queues in all of them. And why? Because in all cases, they took the easy option of making security people redundant, Mm. believing it was a job that could be easily filled. And we now see it can't. <clears throat> so I think we're in the dire straits. If they're bringing in the army, and I would first ask why haven't they looked to the reserves, uh, who are retired soldiers who would have security clearance, who would be experienced in these issues, and who could adapt to the training that would be provided. Of course, they'd have to be paid and paid properly. If we're bringing in soldiers, they will have to be paid too and paid properly. Okay. Uh, We're told, Commandant, that the public won't see members of uh, the Defence Forces, uh, that you won't be interacting face-to-face with uh, commuters. Um, Will soldiers be in uniform or will they be in civilian clothes? Uh, Will they uh, be treated differently than other staff in the airport? Will they be taking orders uh, from managers who work for the DAA? Or how will any of that work, do you think? I suppose... at this stage, it's unclear to me what what what, what the deployment entails. However, uh, it would be very unusual if we weren't to deploy in uniform first and foremost. Um, I suppose most recently we, we we were deployed to the airport as part of the mandatory quarantine scheme, so we have a certain familiarity out there, and we'd have a knowledge or, and, and and know some of the the people and security staff that are out there. Um, yes, it, it would appear. I think the minister was uh, explained in his own interviews yesterday that it'd be non-public facing roles that it would be more dealing with. The transport gates and service gates, so staff gates, uh, is, is, is what I is what I'm, I'm told. Mm. Uh, and I, I suppose we get used to looking at police officers in different countries who are armed, and a lot of us don't like that, but we come to accept it. But people don't want to see the army uh, in any country, let alone in a peaceful, neutral country like Ireland, uh, manning a, a, an airport as they're going off on their summer holidays. It, it seems a very peculiar situation. Uh, is, is that the way your members see it? Um, look, you know, as ever, if 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 such a role is is requested by government or deemed important by enough by government, we 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 have to comply. We 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 answer the call, as they say. Um, it, it's it's up to our our own leadership and and, and management and the Department of Defence to 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 uh, look at whether it's it's appropriate or not. Um, getting to the point about armed number one, this this is going to be a, a, an aid to the civil authority request, so it will be an unarmed role anyway that mm. we'll be going in in. Um, and you know, it 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 it's a case of maybe that's what they're conscious of in terms of not having us out facing the public. But 
you know, I think uh, throughout there, the, the, the response to COVID-19 and support to the HSE and then latter the support to the, the vaccination centres and to the to the uh, mandatory quarantine scheme, mm. uh, people got quite familiar with with, with, with you. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and people appreciate, you know? I think people appreciate that Defence Force is stepping in when there's a, an emergency. Uh, but maybe we'll conclude on that, uh, Jared Crockwell, because uh, you raised the issue of management, recruitment, salaries, terms and conditions and if, I suppose, the DAA is up for the job? Absolutely. And as a member of the Transport Committee, I agreed with the chairman yesterday to call the DEA before the committee next week as a matter of urgency. Um, we, we were out in Dublin Airport several weeks ago and we were assured everything was fine. There was a stream of people in training and that the airport would be up and running. This week, we have the excuse of COVID. I don't know how many people are suffering from COVID or uh, uh, are likely to catch COVID. Everybody in every walk of life in the country is now susceptible to COVID, given the the latest uh, outbreak. But the bottom line on it is Dublin Airport Authority should have contingency plans in place. And it is unfair and wrong in every sense of the word to constantly call in the Defence Forces for every crisis, but particularly wrong to do it for a company that is a private company set up for profit. And, and uh, yeah. that is not what our soldiers and airmen and sailors are there for. Okay. Uh, and the men and women will, I know, and Commandant Ryan is correct, the men and women of the Defence Forces, if ordered to do so, they will do it, and they will do it properly, loyally, and they will never complain. All right, we have to leave there. Thank you both very much indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Independent Senator Jared Crockwell, former member of the Defence Forces. We were also speaking with Commandant Martin Ryan, who's uh, the president of RACO. That's the Representative Association of Commissioned Officers. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. As you've been hearing, uh, the Sinn Féin motion hoping uh, to force an emergency budget will be voted on in the Dáil this evening. And it's wrong to say, as the Sinn Féin motion does, that government has done nothing or condemns what the government has done. I mean, the government has increased uh, the fuel allowance, for example, by 55% or €404. Euros. Um, uh, and that's something already that we've done. About £2.4 in measures have been allocated to the cost of living uh, issue. Um, fuel allowance, we've increased, we, sorry, we cut taxes and increased social welfare rates in the, in the budget last October. But we've also since then, in the measures in February and beyond, reduced the, the excise duty on petrol, diesel and green diesel, saving waters between 9 and 12 euro each time they fill their tank. And we've reduced VAT from 13.5% to 9% on gas and electricity bills. Um, we've also given a 200 euro energy credit to every single household across the country, cut the annual PSO from 52 to minus 75, launched a national retrofitting scheme. We've introduced new grant rates that will cover around 80% of the typical cost of attic and wall insulation. We've put caps on school transport fees for families. We've cut public transport by 20% with an additional 50% cut in fares for young people. We've lowered the threshold for the drug payment scheme. So it's just not fair or balanced to say the government has done nothing. Let's speak uh, to local Sinn Féin TD in Loud, Rory Murakou. A very good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. What do you make of what Taoiseach Michal Martin had to say there? Well, I'm fairly sure what Michal Martin has had to say won't wash with the people that you're probably talking to yourself or that I'm talking to that are coming into my constituency office and are speaking about the individual circumstances they find themselves in where they can't afford 
Um, to basically to keep the show on the road. Um, look, we, we all know we were starting in this state with a really bad situation as regards the cost of living, particularly for people who are caught paying big rents, um, people who can't get a mortgage, and as I say, can't get a deposit together. Um, I, I've had, obviously, I've dealt with you previously with the issue specific to, let's say, Carolyn Hall in Dundalk. I've had people coming in to me in relation to how that's, the, the high cost that they're paying for um, that they're paying for heating is putting them over the edge in relation to their other payments. And then what we're doing is we're looking at ways and means to fix these problems. I brought up an issue with the Taoiseach yesterday in relation to where for certain for people on a half tenancy, if they find themselves in a situation of arrears and lots of things can happen down to people being sick. I spoke about an issue where a woman was dealing with domestic violence, a terrible situation, has ended up with an arrears case and she's been told to pay up the money straight away because there is no facility for a payment plan. So at the minute we're going to another element of social welfare, we're looking at um, an additional needs payment to deal with that issue. Hmm. So it's it's but, other but, matters. But that, but, but that is there for that woman uh, and there would be few well, people well, okay, but there'll be few people in that circumstance. But take the other issue that you spoke about uh, and the cost of heat. I, I don't remember when I last had the heat on. Uh, it's been very humid and I know that we've the windows in the house open most of the time. When we go into the winter, that will change. And that's the government's point, isn't it? That they're working now. The summer statement will be issued in the next couple of weeks for the budget in October, which hopes then to target problems like that as we go into the winter. But the fact is, we're already dealing with bad circumstances. We're dealing with older people. We know that we're not necessarily going to have the most fabulous summer because this is this is Ireland. Uh, that's accepting that it will get worse. But look, we know it's not going to get better. We know the circumstances that people that find themselves in. And we can look now at putting... Um, as I say, ways and means in place. And some of the proposals we're coming up with, as I say, specifically the ones in relation to um, obviously putting a cap in relation to any further increases in relation to um, in relation to rents and putting a month a month's worth of uh, payment back into people's pockets. That's mm. something we've been talking about a considerable amount of time, specifically in relation to the uh, housing problem. Now, mm. we've put proposals, we've all been talking about this cost of living um, issue for a number of months, you know what I mean? And, and we're all aware of the international conditions and yeah. the absolutely and that's horrendous it. There's war. There's only so much the government can do. A lot of it is out of the government's control. No matter how bad it is, uh, the government won't be able to do everything, but it, it, it is looking at a, a focused approach in October. Are you sure Sinn Féin isn't piggybacking people's woes here and the problems that they're finding uh, in making ends meet? But the thing is, we are getting the people coming into our offices. We are talking to people about the particular issues that they find. And we are looking for, it's almost keeping the engine going with bail and twine. We're trying to find ad hoc solutions mm. to every client list asking. But you've put forward a motion you know is doomed to fail. Unfortunately, in politics, what you try and put forward are your proposals. What you try and put forward are your solutions. And, you know, there's an element of until the point in time that you're in um, that you're in government. Sometimes you don't have the power to deliver upon them. So if we operated on that basis, we'd never put anything forward. And the hope is that you do get people to break, that you do get, that you force the government 
um, alongside other opposition and other voices that are out there. We know we have the cost of uh, the cost of living coalition and the particular events that have been organised. It's just it's all about mm. highlighting the issues. And then look, you're, you're talking oh, but about the cost of co- but the cost of living coalition uh, is a, a political uh, coalition in part. Uh, you've Sinn Féin, uh, which are part of that coalition, as are people before profit. Yes, and you also have the number of people that probably aren't politically aligned that are showing. Well, I don't know. They're aligning. They're aligning themselves with political parties, aren't they? Well, there, there's an element of if political parties and people are voicing the same um, the same ideas. I imagine that there is going to be some element of coalition. But I think it's the cause that people want and need. You also have them. Remember, you have uh, retirees. You have um, obviously people representing uh, single parents. You have mm-hmm. a number of other groups that are involved. Mm-hmm. You know, plenty of the NGOs that you've had yourself. You've, you know, uh, I. We've had people speaking at some of these events from the Peter McVeary Trust and such. So there's a considerable amount of people. We all have seen as well that the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, the ESRI and the Central Bank, they have mm. said that the government has scope. Yeah, but the point, the, 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 point, the point remains the same. The cost of living coalition is made up in part uh, by politicians, political parties and individuals who earn over €100,000 a year. And here's what the government can do. The government can introduce the necessary moves at this stage that they know that they can introduce a mini budget and then they won't have to be dealing with a cost of living coalition or whatever. We accept that people, they can't do everything, but we need to do the pieces that we can, you know. And whether that's increasing the minimum wage, whether that's, we still need to look at removing the excise duty on home heating oil. We need, and look, we have also spoken about direct cost-of-living cash payments that's okay. lower and middle-income workers. As, this is just to provide as, mitigations that will improve okay. this. I'm, I'm over time, Rory. As, as things okay. stand, the, no gov- the, the, the government says uh, there won't be any change until October. But I'll leave it there. And thank you indeed. That's uh, local Sinn Féin TD and loud Rory O'Murku. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Gardy are asking you to slow down and be a lifesaver under the hashtag of slow down. Let's hear a little bit more. Chief Superintendent Mick Henbury of the Garda National Roads Policing Bureau is on the line. Good morning to you, Chief Superintendent, and thanks for joining us. Tell us a little bit more about hashtag slow down. Yes, Michael, and thanks for the opportunity to talk to your listeners. We've launched the Be a Lifesaver campaign on Monday and it is, as you say, all about slowing down and changing our road behaviour. The campaign itself is in response to the worrying trend in, road, in fatal road traffic collisions and unfortunately, as of this um, morning, um, we have 83 road fatalities, which is 30 more than this time last year. Mm. Now, of course, we're comparing um, a time when traffic volumes are back to pre-COVID volumes and last year where there was a lockdown. But that figure of 83 represents mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, husbands, wives, partners. So they're not just a statistic. These figures represent real tragedy on the roads mm. and, and the devastating impact it has. And if that family. continues uh, halfway through the year, if it continues for the rest of the year, you're looking at uh, another 83 people who will lose their lives and quite often unnecessarily. Absolutely, Michael, yeah, and that's really the heart of what we're saying. We're saying to people, look, we can't do this on our own. The guards or the RSA cannot change road behaviour, and this is what I'm appealing to your listeners to consider. 
really what we need here is a change of behaviour on our roads. We need to slow down primarily because it is a fact that uh, speed is a major contributing factor to fatal road collisions. Mm. So primarily we're asking people to slow down, take their time, but also to consider their their day-to-day behaviours on the road, such as distraction by mobile phones or other devices, and most certainly intoxicated driving. Mm. So the campaign, Michael, really is, is we're asking people to use their influence to save a life and to be a lifesaver. And already this week, we have um, very high-profile people posting short videos on um, their own social media channels, just giving a simple message to people, just uh, similar to the one I've described. And we're appealing to everybody to come on board with this. So we're reaching into the communities. We're asking people to influence people within their own uh, immediate circles, their social circles, their family Mm. circles, our club or sports circles, and to post that little message. But also to call out something, you know, simplemented when you're driving cars mm. to mammy or daddy slow down or to put on your seatbelt or put away the phone. Okay, and uh, these messages under the hashtag slow down. Slow down. Uh, uh, by how much? Uh, are you uh, suggesting that people uh, don't uh, exceed the speed limit or are you suggesting that they drive below the speed limit? Well, really, so we're asking people to drive to the conditions of the road and the key message there around speed limits is speed limits aren't a target. Right, they're the, they're the maximum speed you should drive on any given road. But any given day, if traffic is heavy, if, there's, if it's raining or whatever, we're encouraging people to drive well within the speed limits and when well within their own capacity. And like nobody likes to be told they're not a good driver. And we have some very good drivers out there. But really what we're saying is um, everybody in the road, cyclists, pedestrians, and we're not demonising or attacking any particular road user type. But we're asking all road users to consider the impact their behaviour might have on others. So mm. really, the slower you go into a collision, and this is unfortunate, and it, but the, it's a fact that if you're travelling at a lower speed going into a collision, you have a far better chance of escaping with your life or a less serious injury than might happen if you're travelling at speed. Or, or of killing somebody else, of course. Exactly, exactly. And that's the key message. And this is the lifesaver behaviour that we're talking about. You know, it's not just about the people in your vehicle or the people in your, you know, whatever you're driving. Mm. It really is about looking out for each other and ensuring that, you know, we, we save lives. Mm. Uh, it's difficult, uh, I think, uh, to drive within the speed limit sometimes within towns. Uh, you see uh, a lot of people driving at 60, let's say, instead of 50, and you're driven off the road if you're trying to drive at 50, let alone 40. Yeah, and that, that's a challenge. And we have noticed post-COVID in particular um, that there has been a deterioration in road behaviour. And yes, it may be difficult, but there's no room, Michael, here for complacency. It's not really, it's not optional. And I know we have the role and we will be out enforcing the speed limits. But really, we're, we're saying it may be difficult to drive within the limits, but they are the limits and they are the law of the land. And really, the amount of time you'll, you'll gain by maybe exceeding that speed limit is very, very little. And really, again, it's the consideration for others. It, right, we all, roads basically are shared, shared spaces. Mm. We all like to use the road and we are, we're all entitled to use the road. But I suppose the overarching right here is the right to life. There's human rights implications here on our behaviour. So everybody has a, a right to life, but also they're entitled to use these shared spaces. OK, so, can, I, can I ask you about mobile phones uh, uh, and texting and distraction uh, and so yeah. on? Uh, because you mentioned that and there was an awful problem uh, with people on their phones, uh, speaking on their phones, texting on their phones, phones between uh, their shoulders and their ears as they were going around corners and that. And, and that improved a lot because there was a, a, a 
clampdown, or at least that uh, would seem to be the case anecdotally, that the guards were out and they were finding people, they were catching people and they were finding people. Uh, but we seem to be going backwards with that. And you see a lot of people uh, on their phones these days. Uh, is that uh, because uh, the guards stopped policing it? No, we are making a particular effort, um, especially up in, in your own area at the moment, around uh, mobile phone and distraction um, detections. Um, it is a huge problem, and we acknowledge it's a huge problem. And we, we, anecdotally, I can tell you, it's not just people making calls, but people are uh, doing video calls. People are, we, we have uh, evidence of people watching films. They're eating their breakfast while driving. So any distraction while you're driving at any speed is particularly dangerous. One moment, one you take your eye off the road, maybe the very moment that the unexpected happens. And that could be a child running out in front, a cyclist falling in front of your vehicle, whatever it is. But mobile phone or distraction um, while driving is particularly, particularly dangerous. Mm. We are continuing to enforce it. And again, um, it's something that we're very keen to get that message across. This is a lifesaver behaviour, just putting the phone away. And again, the message I would say there is if you're travelling with people and drivers are using their phones, it's a simple message. Can you put the phone down until we arrive? And it's that simple sort of influence, exercising our influence mm. while we're in cars or even when uh, you're leaving the house that somebody says, look, take care, drive carefully and put the phone away. Okay. Simple little messaging I think will have an effect. Chief Superintendent, talk to me about driving under the influence. We used to talk about drink driving, but now it's drink and drugs. And I think there was a time not that long ago that young people didn't drink and drive. Is it a situation where those young people are now into their 30s and this is a generational thing and young people these days are driving under the influence? Yes, and our, our detections for intoxicated driving, shall we call it, drink and both drink and drugs, have has increased. And yes, there is a there it is the case that people are driving whilst intoxicated, and that is a very very dangerous driving behaviour, mm. obviously. And um, I take it you still have older people who are drinking, but is oh, it yeah, is yeah. it that young people these days are drinking and driving where let's say ten years ago they didn't. I don't think that's the case, to be fair. Right, I think okay. our intoxicated driving is right across the age spectrum, and uh, drug driving in particular is also right, acro- right across the, the, the age spectrum. Mm. So the message, again, is never, ever, and it's, it was for a while, and hopefully still will remain to me, socially unacceptable to drive whilst drinking. And really, we need to get that message out mm. that any intoxicated driving is not socially acceptable. And okay. this is back to this discussion we need to have with our nearest and dearest, and get that, you know, it's socially unacceptable to do this. And we have to call people out on it. Mm. And again, I'm appealing for help on that message. Uh, and are you talking about uh, people going down to the pub and ha- having a fistful of uh, such uh, and getting into the car? Or is it that there's alcohol in their system the morning after or drugs in their system the morning after or a week after? Yeah, it's no well. Drugs, uh, the, the drink first, I suppose. It 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 ranges. You know, we have people who exceed the the, the limits by a, a large amount, and we also have people that are closer to the limits. But again, any alcohol or intoxicant in the system is going to impair you or my uh, capacity to respond and to um, drive carefully in any given situation. Intoxication by drugs is also a big problem. And again, a lot of people who are using drugs may feel that it's not impairing their driving, but all the evidence tells us that it does. So any intoxication is going to impair us and it's going to cause um, uh, loss of life or serious injury to people. Okay, so the and message is very simple. And with drugs, is it possible that uh, they're being... Uh, discovered with drugs in their system from a a week previously or is it that they would just have taken drugs before they got in behind the wheel? 
it's a it's a mix of both. The drugs will stay in the system for a longer uh, period of time, and really, the I suppose our our um, our message is that if drugs are causing impairment, and that's what will be considered when this goes to to, to any court, is the impairment aspect. But I think the the evidence is that you know there is a lot of evidence of recent drug use and driving, and we we need to, to cut that out. Mm. But also, if you're if you're found with drugs in your system to the extent that it may incapacitate you to drive safely, then you will be prosecuted and the judges then will decide uh, what's the appropriate penalty. Okay, and there's many different reasons behind uh, the fatalities, uh, but if we all think about these things and act appropriately, uh, hopefully the result will be there'll be fewer deaths uh, on the roads in the second half of this year, and we won't see another 83 lives lost, uh, and many of uh, them unnecessarily for that matter. That is uh, why you're asking people to hashtag slow down or be uh, a lifesaver uh, as part of uh, this road safety initiative. Chief Superintendent, thank you indeed for joining us. Thank you very much, Michael. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. Bye-bye. That's Chief Superintendent Mick Henbury of the Garda National Roads Policing Bureau. That's our programme for today. God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Are you ready for truly hydrated skin? Meet Hyaluronic Body Serum, a breakthrough in body care from Osea. It's clinically proven to instantly increase hydration by 161%. Their lightweight, fast-absorbing serum delivers 24 hours of nonstop hydration for silky, smooth skin without the sticky afterfeel. Osea's latest innovation combines the magic of their best-selling Hyaluronic Sea Serum with a new formula that's good for the whole body and five types of hyaluronic acid to target every layer of the skin. Osea is a women-founded, women-led brand that's been crafting seaweed-powered products for nearly 30 years. The best part? Everything Osea makes is clean, vegan, cruelty-free, and climate-neutral certified, so you never have to choose between your values and your best skin. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code SUMMER at oseamalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A-Malibu.com code SUMMER.